so overjoyed this morning as we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And we proclaim together life is worth the living because he lives. The terror, the sting of death is gone because in Christ we have victory over sin, over the law. And God, we rejoice in that this morning. Father, I pray as we turn to your word now that you would give us eyes to see, soften our hearts, that we might be uh, encouraged, built up, and transformed by your holy word, Father. Be at work in us, be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. The resurrection of Christ tells us something about our future. I'm curious how many of us right now uh, have projects that you've started and never finished. Uh, sitting in your basement, maybe in your garage, on the desk. Maybe it's tucked in some closet. I can see some wives nudging some husbands. Uh, there's a doorway into our basement that is all refinished except the last coat of paint. And I couldn't get to that coat of paint because we decided we needed to refinish the chairs around the dining room table. And so those are all pulled apart in a heap and half of them are sanded. But we need to decide on a stain color before that can get finished. And well, we love to start things. Anybody with me who's got projects at home that you've started and not finished? Okay, okay, I'm not alone. We get excited about it. We have, a, we have a vision and a plan and this is what it's going to be and how it's going to go and, and then you get distracted or it's more difficult than you thought or you just lose interest. But for one reason or another, we are notorious for starting things and not seeing them through to completion. On Friday, we looked at what we could rightly consider the beginning of this great work of salvation. Now, of course, we know it was planned in history past before the foundation of the world that God was working out his sovereign plan, all things according to the purpose of his will. But at the death of Christ, there's this turning point. There's this spark. It's the beginning of the the new covenant, which is the, the beginning of our salvation. Looking at that beginning on Friday, we, we looked at Romans 5 verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We talked on Friday how this is the ultimate display of the love of God. And it absolutely is. Paul shows this shocking reality. It's nothing in us. Nothing to do with what we brought to the table. We bring sin and desperate need of help. Inability to stand on our own as, as weak, ungodly sinners. And the amazing work of our salvation and the death of Jesus is grounded and motivated by nothing but the love of God for us. And this gives us great hope as, as even the worst of sinners. As those who fumble and falter in our faith and our hope and our obedience because God's not looking for good people that he gets a good return on his investment. He's not looking for those who are already most of the way down the road towards him. 
He's looking for sinful wretches on whom he can pour out his grace as a display of the the magnitude of his love. Again, this gives us great confidence and assurance in our salvation. It's it's not ours to mess up because it was never dependent on you in the first place. But Paul's not content to stop there. He he goes further. He pushes to this question of, of completion. God has started this work. What confidence do we have that he'll finish it, that he'll drive it through, see it till the end? And he wants to take that that assurance given to, to sinful people brought to salvation by the love of God and drive it down deep beyond a doubt till there's nothing left but rejoicing. So Paul's argument here is that the resurrection gives us confidence in rejoicing. The fact that Jesus didn't stay dead, but but rose again from the grave and is alive today is is the grounds on which we have that confidence. And and God will finish what he has started. So let's finish this journey that we're on from wretched to rejoicing. Why should you open your Bibles to Romans 5? As always, if you don't have a Bible with you, just go up and slip up your hand. One of our uh, ushers will grab you one. And uh, we just want you to have God's word open in front of you um, that you would not take anything this morning based on my authority, but on the authority of God's word that, that as I speak, you would hopefully be able to see clearly and look down and say, this is, this is God's word and, and understand his authority. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, just take this one, just invite you, keep it. Um, we want you to have it. We're always rejoicing when we have to restock our Bibles at the back. Um, So let me read for us Romans 5. Um, Let's start back at verse 6. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's what we're going to focus on this morning. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a thrust of these verses from confidence and rejoicing that we ought to have in our salvation. And the centerpiece of it is the resurrection of Christ. Pointing that out as we go through, if you don't see it immediately, but this morning, this Resurrection Sunday, let's just stop and and take a minute, recognize the absolutely pivotal nature of the resurrection, and we cannot escape this. We can't leave this behind. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was God himself come down in the flesh. That's Christmas. We celebrate. We ought to celebrate this amazing miracle, fully God and fully man together. And he lived an actual physical human life. He walked on this earth and he lived the perfect life in absolute obedience to God, not sinning even once. 
and doing these amazing miracles to prove that he was who he said he was, God himself come down and teaching about the kingdom of God. We believe that he actually physically died, that he was nailed to a cross, that his blood was spilled out onto the ground and he gave his life. And part of that experience, the Bible says, is that on that cross, the wrath of God, the righteous judgment that you and I deserve for our sin was poured out on him so that all who would come to him in repentance and faith could be forgiven of their sin, could be washed clean of guilt and shame. Far too often we stop there, don't we? We ought not to stop there because it's not over yet. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. We believe that he was dead, absolutely, fully, completely dead in the tomb, stone cold for three days, the end of Friday, all day Saturday, the beginning of Sunday. And that he actually physically rose again. His body was brought to life again on the third day. And that matters. We'll see the implications of the resurrection as we work through these verses in Romans. But uh, let me just remind us of what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15. We were reading already from that passage. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He leaves no doubt. And those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ have perished. Listen to this. If in Christ, we have hope in this life only. There are people who argue that. There are. There are churches who say, you know what? It's just about now. Follow the example of Jesus. This is a good thing. He was a good human teacher. He died. um, And that was that. But let's follow him because he had some good things to say. Listen to this. Paul says, if we in Christ, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ isn't raised. This is pointless. Close the doors. Shut her down. There's nothing to see here. Of course, Christ is raised from the dead. This was not the end. The resurrection is the the nail on which all of this hangs together. The resurrection is the glorious declaration from God that, that Jesus is my guy. This is it. That his sacrifice was acceptable to God. That he is who he said he was. The the prince of life. The conqueror over death. And that he can hold out the gift of life to all those who would follow him. The resurrection matters. Let's look into Romans and see specifically these verses. The the implications of the resurrection here in in bringing us from wretched to rejoicing. Verse 9. The resurrection confirms our justification. The resurrection confirms our justification. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Twice in these verses, Paul uses this kind of method of argument from the greater to the lesser, right? That if God has achieved the greater, more difficult thing. Won't won't it follow that he would do the the simpler, easier thing to complete it? And so the first argument here he makes is is if, if we've been justified by the death of Christ, if he's given his own son to die on the cross, 
Doesn't it make sense? How much, how much more will he also complete that, confirm that in saving us from the wrath of God to come? And so his anchor, where he begins, is this assumption that we've been justified by his blood. If you're a believer this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, he has saved you. And part of that, what that salvation looks like, is that in the shedding of his blood and dying on the cross, you have been justified. That's a, a theological word that should not be foreign to us. We need to, we need to grapple with these words and understand them. Justification is probably the key word that runs throughout the book of Romans. To be justified means to be counted just, to be declared righteous. It's a courtroom term. Justification, what happens when the, when the judge's gavel comes down and he says, not guilty, not guilty. It's a declaration of innocence. And we use this word in, in the world around us. It's, it's out there. Uh, if a sales rep is out and he charges an expensive dinner um, to his company card, his boss might pull him aside and question him, asking, is this, is this legitimate? Are you, are you taking wrongful advantage of the privilege that I've given you? Have you misused the company charge card? What's he asking? Can you justify this expense? And the sales rep would say, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was one of our major clients. I took him out for dinner and I closed his sale and we're going to make a million dollars off of it. He's been justified. He's proven. He's, he's right. He's innocent in his actions. But of course, the problem for us is that we are not just. We don't have an excuse. If we lay our lives bare before God, we can't say, look, I'm innocent. We're guilty. So something radical, something drastic has to happen, something on a cosmic level that sinners could be justified. And that's what God did. And just try to measure yourself up for a minute against the Ten Commandments, just a, just a baseline standard. You ever lied? You ever stolen anything? You ever hated someone? Jesus says that's tantamount to murder. Have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? Jesus says that's the same as adultery. We could keep going down the list, but I, I dare say we probably don't need to. We're guilty, and we know we're guilty. And God is absolutely holy. We have to understand to love good means to hate evil. Right? If I love children, I hate child molesters. You can't have it both ways. And God's intense, overwhelming love for all that is good is matched by his intense, overwhelming anger and wrath toward all that is evil. That's the category into which we fall. We cannot exist in the love of God as sinners. So again, something significant had to happen for sinners to be justified. That's the death of Christ. It's only by the death of God himself come down as a man to stand in our place to take that wrath that we deserved and pay it in full on the cross. We, we sometimes talk about the cross as if on the cross, Jesus just said, don't worry about it. Like I'll, I'll cover over your sin. We'll sweep it under the rug. We won't talk about it. That's not it. It was paid. The wrath of God that would have taken me an eternity to absorb was condensed down into three hours and poured out on Jesus in that span of darkness on the cross. It was fully paid. Our guilt is wiped away. We are made just. 
This is mind-blowing. Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we who are sinners might be declared righteous in God's courtroom. If you're a Christian this morning, the gavel has fallen. The declaration has been made. The moment you put your faith in Christ, it was said, innocent. And yet, the Bible still speaks of a future judgment. That day is coming. A day when every person will stand before God. Hebrews 9, 27, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans 14:10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Do you not despise or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You will stand before God's judgment. That day will come. You you can't escape it. For some that will be a, an unspeakably horrible day when they come face to face with the creator whom they have denied. But for others, that will be a day of great rejoicing. For those who have trusted in Jesus, who have repented of their sin, who have called out, I need that sacrifice. I am a guilty sinner. I need Jesus to save me. Paul says, how much more? If you've already been justified by the death of Christ, how much more will you be saved from that coming judgment? And the resurrection is in there. Did you see it? We're saved not by a dead Jesus, but by a living Savior from from the future judgment. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 draws this parallel. Uh, He says that the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serving the true God. And then he says, to wait for his Son from heaven. This is the second coming of Christ. To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The resurrected Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. From that final judgment. It's as if our trial is over. The verdict has been given. But we still await our our sentencing. Or our final release. It hasn't been fully dealt out yet. Paul is saying if Jesus died to purchase that verdict of innocent. To rightly pay the entire penalty that you owed. To clear the case against you. How much more will he who is now raised from the dead. Follow that through. Make sure that your final sentencing agrees with that verdict. And you can imagine the tension. Put yourself in a courtroom position standing before a judge. You're guilty. You know it. He knows it. Everybody knows it. But your lawyer pulls the judge aside and makes some kind of deal. A deal that sets you free. Just between the the two of them, and for argument's sake, we'll say it's somehow totally legitimate. You're not bending the law, but there's a deal made between the two of them. And then your lawyer dies before your sentencing. What what confidence do you have? What assurance do you have that that judge is going to follow through on the deal that was made in this back room? Paul is saying, no, our advocate... Our lawyer, Jesus, has died, but he is raised again and with the Father, and he will see this through to the end. 
What a glorious hope we have. Jesus did not die in vain. He'll, he'll finish it. He'll complete it. Look at John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's sure. It's absolutely sure. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you're one of those whom the Father has given to the Son, know that not only has he died for you, but he lives for you to see that through to to completion. The resurrection guarantees it. The resurrection confirms our justification right through into eternity. We will be completely sheltered from the wrath of God. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What hope there is. There's nothing left. So verse 9 shows us that the resurrection confirms our justification. And verse 10 shows that the resurrection completes our reconciliation. Sorry, we're going to do a little bit of a theological dictionary this morning. Again, reconciliation is a rich theological term, but it's one that we use. That Jesus is reconciling us to God. And again, he makes this argument from the greater to the lesser. The if there um, at the beginning expects a positive answer, right? Um, let's pick up here verse, uh, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So while you were an enemy of God, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And you were the enemy of God. Philippians 3.18, Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. James 4.4, You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no middle ground. We are born as sinners. We are born embracing sin and, and, and loving this world. Naturally, seeking after the, the physical things rather than the glory of God. And that makes us enemies of God. We've traded the glory of the creator for created things. And think about that. There's no worse place to be than an enemy of God. That's just bad news. One of the defining features of what it means to be God is that God wins. He always wins. He crushes his enemies. Every one of them. Those who stand against him, he will cast out into the eternal fire of hell. He's he's not playing games here. Paul says their end is their destruction. But in Christ, in his 
death, we who were enemies have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation is the idea of bringing two fighting individuals back together to to fix the relationship, bring it back to, to peace. It's interesting, as you read through Scripture, watch for this, reconciliation only ever goes one direction. You'll notice, as you see this word, Sinners are always reconciled to God. God is never reconciled to sinners. And the implication is it's not God that needs to change. God doesn't change. His wrath towards sin remains the same. But that sin is dealt with. And so sinners are reconciled to God. And that happened at the, at the cost of the death of Christ. So while you were his enemy, that's what he accomplished. Second. Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we who were mortal enemies of God, who had declared war on God by our sin, have not only been forgiven, but reconciled. We're made God's friends. More than that, we're made his children. And from here, Paul reasons that that if when we were enemies, sinners, says verse 8, we were reconciled to God at the cost of the death of Christ, if that's how he treated us when we were his enemies, how much more now that we're reconciled, now that we are his children, can we be confident that we'll be saved by the life of Christ? And here again is the resurrection. He didn't just die with the, the last wish that we would be saved. He rose again in power over death, having reconciled us to God in his death. How much more will he now in his life see through this great salvation? And so not only do we escape future judgment, escape eternal death, but we're saved by his life. And the word by there, I think, is a lot richer than our English. It's not just a functional tool there. It means in his life, with his life. So the contrast here in verse 9, we will escape death, we'll escape the judgment that we deserve. Verse 10, we will experience the life of Christ. We, we share in that resurrected life of Jesus. Romans 6, just down the page, Paul goes on about this. We read a significant passage for us. Romans 6, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because it's true. That's that's why we ought to consider ourselves this way. Because we've been crucified with Christ. That that old sinful self has been put to death on the cross. And now I have been resurrected with Christ. I share in this life of Christ, this resurrection life. We're not only saved from the condemnation of sin, 
from that final judgment, but our reconciliation to God finds its completion in this truth that we're, we're brought into the life of Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is exactly what Jesus promised while he was on earth. John 10.10, the thief, this is Satan and sin. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What is that abundant life? What what is he talking about? It's the fullness of reconciliation with God. Look at John 17, 3. So so hold 10, 10 in your mind that, that he came to bring us life abundant. And then John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the definition of eternal life. Abundant life is reconciliation with God. It's knowing Him. And I think as Jesus talks about eternal life and abundant life, He's talking both eternal in time, in its length, but also in its breadth, also eternal in its fullness and abundance of joy. True eternal life is full reconciliation with the Father. He created us. And He created us to be in relationship with Him. That's, that's what we saw in the, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew Him personally. That's what they were created for. And sin, their, their disobedience, small as it might have looked as we kind of look in and go, really, and they stole a piece of fruit? But it was a rebellion against God and it was the destruction of that relationship. It tore down what they were created for. And the ultimate penalty, the inevitable consequence is to be cut off from God, cut off from from His love and to know only His wrath. You ever feel like you were meant for something more? Like, Like this life just never quite satisfies? Like you're just kind of spinning your wheels on the rat race treadmill, get up, go to work, eat, sleep, repeat until you die? Is this all there is? Is this what we were created for? No, it's not. There's a reason you feel that way. Ecclesiastes 3.1, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts. So there's, there are plenty of things that are beautiful in their time. There are plenty of things that we enjoy in this world as we go through the course of this life, and that's good. But God has also put eternity into the hearts of man. There's something there that will never be fully satisfied outside of what is eternal, outside of God, outside of that relationship with Him that we were created for. When Jesus died on the cross... And the sun went black. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took what we deserved. Those three hours of darkness on the cross, Jesus himself was cut off from the loving presence of God and felt only the wrath of God. That relationship was broken. And in that, he purchased our reconciliation. And by his resurrection, he's completing that work. He will bring it through to the end. 
follow with me here. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus, who's died for our reconciliation, who took that separation from God on our behalf, now is raised and he's with the Father. And what's he doing? He's praying. He is interceding for us right now as we're here and I'm preaching and you're listening. He's interceding for you and for me. What do you suppose Jesus prays for, for us? I think the only guess we have, and I I don't think it's a guess, I think it's a logical assumption. The resurrected Jesus prays for the very thing that Jesus prayed for us while he was here on earth. John 17, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And, and, and it's a beautiful passage, but keying in on verse 15 specifically, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen to this, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So that's what he's after, that we would be sanctified. Great, another theological word. Set apart. Set apart for what? What does he want to set apart from? Set apart from sin, set apart from the the temptation, the wiles of the evil one. Set apart for, for reconciliation. Set apart for God. Set apart to be with him. Jesus prays that we would have a relationship with the Father, that we would be united to Him in our sanctification. That's true life. That's life abundant. That's what He's after. That they might live in it, they might count themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's the cool part. Because of the resurrection, He's able to do it. He's able to do it. Hebrews 7 picks up on this same theme. Verse 24 but he holds the priesthood permanently. This position from which he prays for our sanctification, for our being set apart for a purpose. He holds it permanently because he continues forever. Why does he continue forever? Because he died already and he's been raised again. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So there it is again, this kind of weaving together of the ideas of those who are drawing near to God as he's interceding for them, saving them to the uttermost. He's going to complete it. He's going to, he's going to bring it through to the end. And the resurrection secures for you and for me a growing freedom from sin, which separates us from God. And a true, close reconciliation and relationship with God. That's what Jesus purchased for you. Does that battle against sin just feel endless and like tyranny some days? It's not. Its power has been broken. Christ is at work interceding for you that that you would be kept from sin. You would be brought out from that and sanctified to God. And he will do it. He will bring it through to the uttermost. And so Paul's 
application of this, Romans 6, 11, that we, that we looked at just moments ago. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because it is true. So believe it to be true. The resurrection opens this for us. So walk in it. Leave sin behind. Put it to death. Don't let it rule over you. Pick up your Bible and bask in the words of God in this amazing display of love on these sacred pages. Drink deeply at the fountain of prayer. That takes work. I know it does. Every day it does. But get up. Get on your knees and seek Him in prayer. He desires to walk closely with you. And Jesus has died and been raised to make that happen. But it doesn't end there. The resurrection confirms our justification. The resurrection completes this work of reconciliation. And finally, the resurrection calls for our rejoicing. Verse 11. For the third time, Paul repeats this praise. More than that. If you've been justified by his blood, more than that shall you be saved from the wrath of God. If you've been reconciled by his death, more than that will you be saved by or into his life. And verse 11, much more than all of that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Here Paul sums up everything he said from all the way back to to verse 6 where we started Friday morning. This is the culmination of it all. Of Christ's death for the weak, for the ungodly, for the sinner. This ultimate display of his love. The outcome of our justification, our salvation, our reconciliation. It's all mounting together, all flowing together as tributaries into this one great mighty river that we should rejoice in Christ. Do you see it? That's the mountaintop right there. This is what we've been climbing for. Take it in. This is what we were created for. We've often talked about having been saved as if it's only justification. Just escaped sin. Escaped, not even escaped sin, I've just escaped the punishment for sin. I'm going to heaven. I trusted in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell falls so, so far short of what God comes to offer. We bring in reconciliation. We move a long ways forward. Not only to escape judgment, but to enter into relationship with God. But even that takes us only to to the last camp before the summit. Even that takes us only to the approach. But this right here, this is it. The final goal of all of this is that we would rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. That's why he died. That's why we're justified. That's why we're reconciled. That's the purpose of the resurrection, that we would have joy in God. Church, I want this for you so much. This is I spent my time preparing and have been praying that right here, God would open your heart to see something new, to see this more clearly than you've seen it before. It's one thing to know all about the gospel. It's one thing to know all about God. Every theological word you've heard this morning, you've been like, check, got it. Old news. 
It's one thing to do what is right out of a sense of duty and obligation. We go to church every single Sunday. We tithe and we do everything right. But it's a totally different thing to understand what it means to rejoice in God. That's what Christ desires for you. That's why he rose from the grave. The essence of sin is that we pursue joy outside of God. We pursue our fulfillment, our satisfaction in something that is not Him and therefore will never fill us. Listen to Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Double sin. They've stopped seeking after their satisfaction and joy in God, and they've looked for it other places in cisterns, stale pools of water, cracked ones that let the water run out that will never satisfy. The bottom line of sin is we try to satisfy ourselves. We try to find joy and life in that which is not God. God actually threatens Israel if they will not find joy in Him. Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. So God says, this this is the essence of sin, that you seek your joy in in other things rather than me. And if if you will not seek your joy in me, you will be punished. But far more predominantly, far more persuasively, all through Scripture, continually through the Bible, He calls us, come and find your joy in me. Come and see the fullness of joy. We already looked at Jesus' definition. What is an abundant life? It's to know God. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about mouths and stomachs. He's talking about that deep satisfaction of the soul. They will have peace. They will have rest. They will have joy. It's not just an escape from judgment. It's it's not just a relationship technically made right. It's a joy. It's a heart that lacks no good thing because it has God. It has what satisfies. It's left longing for nothing. Psalm 63. David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Listen to this. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people. We're the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Philippians 4.4, Paul commands rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. You see it? This is what we were created for. This is the essence of heaven. We get so far off base thinking about floating clouds and harps and angels and wings. No, God is there. We will be with Him. We will have joy with Him. We will be face to face with the one who made us and intends to satisfy us. To experience God Himself and be overcome with endless wave after wave of increasing joy in His presence. Jesus died and rose again to make you happy in God. And our happiness, our joy in Him is His tool for His own worship, for His own glory. In our happiness in Him, He is worshipped most fully. Our joy displays His glory and wonder. And so God fulfills His ultimate purpose of displaying His glory in us as He fulfills every longing in our hearts as we are overflowing with joy in Him. And He doesn't reserve that for heaven. It's not some far-off day in the future. Now certainly, the fullness of it absolutely is. When we see Him face to face, when when sin is put off, when these weak fleshly bodies are made new again as they ought to be and we stand in His presence, then we will know the fullness of that joy. Then we will know as we are fully known. And yet He invites us now to seek after His joy, to, to put away these poisonous, deceitful, imitation joys of this world and to set our hearts on Him, to know Him, to walk with Him, To love Him. Oh, church, the resurrection calls for our rejoicing. Do you see it? Won't you answer that call? Consider the great love of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider the justification and the future salvation that Jesus has accomplished for you. Consider that Jesus was cut off from the Father so that we might be reconciled to Him and that we're invited to the fullness of abundant life and the infinite, almighty, all-knowing, glorious God calls us to come and find our joy in Him. This is the power, the wonder, the glory of the death and resurrection of our Lord. This is it. Let me hear your response. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Won't you stand? Let's rejoice together.